Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and his church, grow in faith and understanding of God's word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts chapter 19. We're going to be um, taking a break from Exodus just this week while Adam is out of town and, and jumping into the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles available in front of the seats or behind the seats in front of you. And so as you're turning there, Acts 19, Paul here in this passage, he's coming to Ephesus. Now Ephesus is a major port city. Right, they're now located in modern-day Turkey location. And, and the people here in Ephesus were obsessed with all kinds of, of magic, incantations, and idol worship. And so these first verses in chapter 19, Paul is meeting with disciples of John the Baptist. And these disciples of John the Baptist had heard a little bit about who Jesus was, and Paul now comes on the scene to, to tell them that Jesus, who you've heard about from John, has now come. And this Jesus has been crucified and raised. And so these disciples of John turn from their sin, they believe in Christ, and are saved. And Paul then, according to verse 10, he spends two years in Ephesus. And, and during those two years, he is sharing the gospel first in a synagogue for a few months and then in the hall of Tyrannus for the remainder of the time. And, and what we see in the book of Acts is that even in the midst of one of the darkest cities, this major Roman Empire city, a major city in the world at this time that is significantly dark, even in the midst of that, God's word is increasing and God's word is prevailing. That even though Ephesus was a very dark place, many people are coming to saving faith through Paul's ministry. So we pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 19 of the book of Acts. So, so Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And starting in verse 11, he says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. 
both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We see this in this passage. And, and what I want to ask us is, is why can't this happen now? Why doesn't this happen right now? Don't we, as believers, don't we want the word of the Lord to spread all across the city of LaGrange? Don't we want the word of the Lord to spread all across the state of Georgia, all across the United States and, and into all of the world? Why can't this happen now? Well, you see, it's tempting to come to a text like this where we see these narratives and think initially, what do I need to do to make this happen here? Based off of these examples, what do I need to do for the word of the Lord to spread now like it did then? What, what songs do we need to sing? Or what, what style do we need to have? What programs or classes do we need to offer? What do we need to do for the word of the Lord to spread here and now like it did then? But you see, while we ask these questions when we come to the text oftentimes, that's not what Luke is wanting us to ask. The question in this text is not primarily what must I do, but the question we find in this text is, who must I be? Who must I be? In this passage, um, you, see, you see these two sections. First of Paul in verses 11 and 12, just serving as this incredible example of the Lord spreading and prevailing mightily through him. And then you see this again in verses 17 through 19 of these residents of Ephesus, these ordinary disciples who hear the word of the Lord, turn from their sin, believe, and the word prevails mightily. And right between these two examples, you have this small narrative, this small little story about the seven sons of Sceva. And this is where we get the question. And this is what Luke is wanting us to see. The main question is asked here in verse 15. Interestingly, by a demon, he says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? This question in the text is not first and foremost, what must I do? The question in the text is, who am I? Who are you? Who do you belong to? Where do you find your identity? And Luke shows us that these three narratives that are tied together, um, they show us that identity, the life, is only found in Jesus. 
We are to be found in Christ and, and through Christ we can experience new life. So Luke gives us three marks of what it looks like to belong to Christ. How do you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? We'll look at these three marks, and these are through these three examples that he gives us. Remember, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Notice here, at the beginning of this text, we see this narrative about Paul in verses 11 and 12. Paul is showing us what it looks like to have identity in Christ. What does it mean to find your identity in Christ and belong to Jesus? And what he shows us is that what it looks like to belong to Christ is to first be a steadfast servant for Christ. If you want to look what it looks like to belong to Jesus, you are a steadfast servant for Christ. As we know about Paul in general, we know that after he came to saving faith on the road to Damascus, he was willing to serve Christ wherever he was called. And, and he was spreading out all over the world, just sharing the gospel, making disciples, sometimes working, uh, secular jobs, ordinary jobs, other times not. He was not a captain of his own choices, but he was simply a, living as a servant of Christ. And as a servant of Christ, he was active in the ordinary. As a servant of Jesus, Paul was active in the ordinary. You see, servants of Christ live ordinarily where they are called. See how Luke sets this up, okay? So, so Paul is a tent maker by trade. We know this from his time that he spent in Antioch. And then we also see this here. At this point in his ministry to Ephesus, he's refused to receive any support from them. We see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 33 and 34. He is supporting his own way so that he does not become or lay a stumbling block before the gospel and no one accuses him of peddling the gospel for money. So Paul doesn't receive any support, but he instead supports himself. And how does he do that? Well, he stays in Ephesus for two years and he's making tents every day doing an ordinary job. Now, how this would work in Asia, and particularly in Ephesus, was tent making. If, if you're a tent maker, your, your workday would typically start at about 7 a.m. And you'd begin making tents from about 7 o'clock until 11 in the morning. You'd get a little bit of a break from 11 to about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then you'd go back to making tents from 4 p.m. to about 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the evening. So he's making tents from 7 to 11 and then 4 until 10 p.m. And during that break in the middle... As the text tells us, Paul is going to these different places. First the synagogue for a few months, but, but really most of his time was spent in the hall of Tyrannus. And he uses that 11 to 4 hour window to go into the public space and reason with people about Christ. To disciple new believers, to preach the gospel. Listen, this is a man who gets up for work every day and he shares the gospel on his lunch break. The word of the Lord prevailed mightily through Paul, but Paul right here that we see, he's simply a servant who is steadfast. He gets up, he goes to work, he sweats, he labors, he preaches, he reasons, he disciples. He's getting up every single day and doing it all over again. He does it for two full years, six days a week, five hours lecturing, 
during the day, that's over 3,100 hours that Paul spends in the hall of Tyrannus over those two years, reasoning with people, pleading with people to trust Christ, preaching the gospel. In this moment, Paul, Paul is a man who's not extraordinary, but Paul is a man who is steadfast for Christ, active in the ordinary. This is what we see of Paul. But the question before us this morning is, who are you? Who am I? Are you steadfast to do the simple in life? Are you active in the ordinary? Or do you chase the big things, the big mountaintop experiences? I want you to see the way that Luke is telling the story. As Paul is active in the ordinary, God is the one who's accomplishing the extraordinary through Paul. Notice that Luke does not tell us that Paul is doing any of these miracles or that Paul is casting out demons or that Paul is healing the sick. Who does Luke tell us is doing all of this work in verse 11? God, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's interesting here how God is working through Paul. They come to Paul while Paul is working his job and Paul has to make a living so he's not able to leave and say, you know, we know that you can't go with us so let us just, let us just take that handkerchief that's sweaty around you or that, that apron around your waist and we'll take it to, to that friend who's sick or, or this other individual who's possessed by a demon. Will you just give these things to us and we'll take it and they'll be healed or the demon will be cast out. Notice what God's doing. God is taking these sweat-soaked symbols of Paul's ordinary labor and he's using them as instruments of mercy for his glory. This is God, by his mercy, choosing to work through Paul, even these items that Paul has merely touched and people are being healed. God takes his steadfast servants who are active in the ordinary and uses them for his extraordinary glory. This is who Paul is. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Is the question for this morning. Are you committed to doing the simple the ordinary every day. Because I hate to break it to you, but the simple and the ordinary is the normal Christian life, right? The Christian life is not all about these mountaintop experiences, these big things, and other times in life we'll experience valleys, surely, absolutely. But the, the Christian life is about the simple, the everyday, the ordinary. The rhythm of faithfulness in our lives, doing the regular every day. But instead, oftentimes, if you're like me, uh, we, we can sometimes not be willing to do the ordinary. We just want the, the glamour of the extraordinary. You know, sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, Pastor Matt, I believe that, that God is calling me to be a missionary in sub-Saharan Africa. In the, in the jungle, I'll say, like, praise the Lord. Absolutely. 
Let me, let me just ask you this question. Are you sharing the gospel where you are right now? Because if you're unwilling to do the ordinary and the simple acts right now, my guess is that God's not calling you to that at this time. We can be so unwilling to do the simple, the ordinary everything, everyday things of the Christian life. And we wonder why God doesn't use us for the extraordinary. Who are you? Do you want to know what the mighty Christian life looks like? It looks like reading your Bible every day. It looks like praying. It looks like sitting under the, the, the preached word of God, living in community with other believers, waking up and going to work on time. It looks like working hard. If you make spreadsheets, make really nice organized spreadsheets to the glory of God. You're serving well where God has placed you. You're loving your kids. You're reading the Bible to them. You're loving your spouse. You're being a good husband or a good wife. These ordinary things of faithfulness, commit yourself to the simple and see how God will use you in extraordinary ways as you're dependent on his spirit. Now, we can be tempted to think, okay, Matt, you are talking about the Apostle Paul here as, as an example. This is true for Paul, but what about us normal people? I mean, Paul wrote half of the New Testament. I am trying to get out of bed every single morning. I'm not Paul. Well, this is where you need to see how these three narratives are all tied together. And it's in this next section, this middle section, where Paul really begins to press in on this central question, who are you? And this shows the second mark of belonging to Christ, which is being completely known in Christ. The second mark of belonging to Christ is, is you are completely known in Christ. This central narrative, verses 13 through 16, is showing us a contrast of Paul now. And, and, and a contrast of the new believers that we're going to see in the next section. Here, with the seven sons of Sceva, we see the opposite of what we should do. But even within this story, we see a picture of what it looks like to belong to Jesus. So, so here we have these, these itinerant Jewish exorcists. There's seven of them, right? And we're told that their father, Sceva, is a high priest. So whether he's, whether he's a an actual high priest, or he's just claiming that title for himself for the sake of business gain, we don't know. Uh, I would guess it was the latter, if I were, if I were assuming. But essentially, these, these brothers, they travel around and exercise demons. They cast out these demons, and they're in Ephesus at the same time Paul is. So they will typically use whatever name seems to be most effective and say that name and try to, try to work their magic. Whatever's working most, we'll cast out demons by that name. When that name stops working, we're gonna try another name. We'll find another incantation. We'll find another phrase, another word that works for us in that moment so we can make a living and we can go about our day. And so these seven guys, they see what Paul is doing. They see the word of God increasing. They see that these demons are even being cast out by Paul's sweaty apron. 
And they figured, huh, this Paul guy is pretty good. What do we need to do to get that kind of, get that kind of action? What must we do to be like Paul? So they come to this man who has a demon. And notice what they say in the, in the text. Verse 13. I adjure you, I, I cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. If you want to know, if you're completely known, ask yourself if you are identified with Christ. Am I identified with Jesus? We cast you out by Jesus. Not the Jesus that we know personally. We don't know him. We're, we're not known by him. But we adjure you by the Jesus that, that Paul, this guy over here, preaches. You notice here that Paul is so wrapped up in Christ that they say, we adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. When, when they think of Jesus, they think of Paul. Those two names go together, that Paul's life is hidden with Christ. He's identified with Christ. We know this happens in our human experiences, right? Um, when I think of, of my, my mom, for example, I think of my dad. You know, they, in my human experiences, they are so wrapped up together. And I hope that's true for, for Lacey and I. When you think of me, I hope you think of Lacey. Is your name so identified with Jesus that they would have known you? The people in your life, do they connect your name with the name of Jesus? Because when, when people think of us, they will often associate us in different ways. So when people think of your name, what do they think of? Is your identity so wrapped up in Christ that you're identified with him? That to know Jesus is to know Matt or to know Jared. And to know you is to know Jesus. We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But notice in the text, it's not just that. Look, when you are completely known in Christ, you will not only be identified with Christ, but you will be recognized by demons. This is one of the most fascinating stories in all of Acts, in my opinion, all of the Bible, that they come to cast out this demon and they try to do it by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And it's the demon who speaks truth to them. We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon says, um, excuse me, gentlemen, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who do you think you are that you would come to me and try to cast me out of this man? Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. But who are you? That, that Paul is so identified with Christ. His, so, his life is so wrapped up in Christ, in the things of the Lord, that he is a natural enemy for the demons. He works towards the same end, ends as Christ. His life is so aligned with the purposes of Jesus so that because he's a friend of Jesus, he is an enemy of the demons because Jesus and the demons are, are enemies of one another. They say, we know Jesus, 
And we know Paul because he's in Jesus. But look, friends, who in the world are you guys? Do the demons have a reason to know your name? Are you so identified with Christ at your work, in your neighborhood, with your family? Are you so wrapped up in Christ that the demons have a reason to oppose you? Or are you not worth knowing? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Listen, this is a, this is a fundamental question to ask because it has eternal consequences. If you don't know who you are, you will be found and you will find yourself in shame. Those who are completely known in Christ, those who are identified with Christ, recognized by demons, they are freed from shame. Those who aren't will find themselves in shame as the seven sons of Sceva. Look in verse 16. See what happens to these men. The demon-possessed man says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I don't know you. And then he, he jumps on them and he masters them all. The same word Luke uses here is the word he uses in other places as exorcism. And so see the irony. They come to cast out the demon and the demon is the one who casts them out. It's ironic. You have no authority here, the demon says. So he leaps on them, one man on seven. He overpowers them, essentially beats them up. They flee the house naked and wounded. I don't know how they got naked, but they left the house naked and wounded. Uh, They flee the house in shame. That's what Luke, the writer of Acts, is trying to communicate to us. They are fleeing the house. They are leaving in utter shame, bared and bloodied. And this becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus. They attempt to use the name of Jesus, this magic word, this this rabbit foot, and manipulate the name and power of Jesus, and they find themselves in utter shame. They do not know Christ, nor nor are they known by Christ, so they are put out in shame. You must know that imitation faith always ends in shame. Faith that is not genuine, faith that does not know Jesus or is known by Jesus always ends in shame, either in this life or the next life. Some of us have have all sung the right songs, have all the right answers, all the right outward forms of godliness. But if we're honest, they don't actually belong to us. Some of us are trying to push back the darkness with a borrowed faith from someone else. And what we're gonna hear out of the abyss is, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Listen, there is a real enemy, and he is, he's roaming to and fro, seeking who he might devour. And he is always hungry. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he is very good at it. And he's not afraid of you or me. Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize. But who are you? We see what happens to these men. 
They are put out, bloodied, naked, and bare. Now look, now look what Luke does, okay? So Luke now gives us a final example of God working in extraordinary ways, positively, as a direct result of what just happened. The positively initially showed Paul, negatively showed the seven sons of Sceva, and is returning again to a positive example, showing us that this extraordinary work of God is not just through Paul, but through these new believers as well. So if you think to yourself, oh, well, that was true for Paul, not true for me, here we go. How do you know you belong to Christ? You are a steadfast servant to Christ. You are completely known in Christ, and you are obedient to the word of Christ. You are obedient to the word of Christ. Look in verses 17 through 19. These new believers have just trusted in Christ after this episode with the seven sons of Sceva who are beat up by the demon-possessed man. And Luke tells us that word of this travels all throughout Ephesus. Everybody hears it. And notice what, what he says in verse 17. And fear fell upon them, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Luke is telling us here what God is doing through these brand new believers. That, that this, they are obedient to the word, and their life is marked with a reverence towards the Savior. Notice they hear this tale of the demon-possessed man beating up the seven sons of Sceva. They're sent out in shame, and fear of the Lord falls upon them, not fear of demons. And the name of Christ is praised. These new believers, these new converts... In Ephesus, fear the Lord. They are reverent toward the Savior. They've come out of a sinful life. They've come out of the darkness practicing magic arts and incantations. And, and yet they fear the Lord. They extol Christ. They lift up the name of Jesus. And notice here that they are lifting up the name of Jesus even though they've not really known Jesus all that long. They, you see, are, are not like Paul, planting church after church after church and, and seeing God do incredible miracles and so many people being saved. These are brand new believers, yet they fear the Lord. They extol the name of Christ. They live a reverent life. That's who, that's who they are. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Is your life marked by a reverence towards the Savior? But notice the connection here, right? Don't miss this. They fear the Lord. They lift up the name of Christ, but they're not just reverent towards the Savior. They are repentant of their sin. They are repentant of sin. This is the miracle that God does in Ephesus. If you were to keep reading in Acts, you'll see that God does such a work in Ephesus that the whole town becomes a riot and they want to kick Paul out because he's turning the whole city upside down. So many people are getting saved. The whole city that was given over to, to dark arts, magic, incantations is flipped on its head because the gospel has saved so many people. And these people right here, after seeing the Seven Sons of Sceva episode, they come out and they repent. They hear the story of the seven sons of Sceva, and they realize that their old life in the occult is no longer compatible with their new life in Jesus. Notice how Luke describes it in verse 18. They come out, they confess, and then they divulge, right? 
they come out confessing and divulging their practices. And, and to divulge means like they come out admitting that they too ascribe to what the seven sons of Sceva were just found guilty doing. They, they too practiced magic and relied on incantations and magic words and spells. And they come out and confess these things. And notice that they don't just give the books away, say, we don't need these anymore, here you go. In Ephesus, these books are worth a lot of money. That's why Luke tells us this detail. Luke tells us these books are worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, some people will say that that's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Other scholars will say, like, that's millions of dollars. I don't know. It's a lot of money. That's all that you need to know. It's a big business in Ephesus that, that people would keep these, evil, these, these spell books to ward off evil spirits or to heal themselves or to make things happen in their life. If you say this phrase or these things, or if you do this, this equation, magic incantations were believed to have happened. There's a lot of money tied up in these books to make your life better. And they come out and say, this isn't who we are anymore. So they bring out their books, they confess their sin, they divulge it, and they burn them in the, in the sight of all. They don't just put them on a shelf somewhere and think, yeah, I'll never use those again. But they say, we don't wanna lead anyone astray by these again. We're gonna take them out in the middle of the city and we're gonna burn them. Notice they don't just confess their sin, but they forsake their sin. This is the picture of repentance, a willing and eagerness to repent of sin is to expose it and to forsake it. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Is your life marked with a reverence for God and repentance of your sin? That if you belong to Christ, is your life being changed by the Holy Spirit that you look more like Jesus? Do you find that you look more like Christ now than you did five years ago? Do you look more like Christ now than you did 10 years ago or 30 years ago? Do you find by the hope and the help of the Holy Spirit that you can look at your old life and say, I, that is no longer compatible with who I am now in Jesus. Just who are you? Are you a steadfast servant of Christ? Completely obedient and completely known? Who are you? You know what's worse than demons not knowing your name is Christ not knowing your name. Matthew 7, people come to Jesus and they're answering a question that Jesus doesn't even ask. They come prepared to answer this question, what have you guys done for me? What have you done for me? So these, these people come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, we've done all these things for you. We've cast out demons. We've prophesied in your name. We've done all this for you. But that's not the question that Jesus is asking. What was Jesus asking? Who are you? He says to these people who, have, who don't know Jesus but have done a lot of things for him, Depart from me, for I never knew you. 
Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? If you find yourself without a genuine faith in Jesus, you will be found in shame, bloodied and bare. But the good news is that Christ has taken that shame for us. Jesus on the cross bears our wickedness. He bears our shame. Think about the question that everyone was asking when Jesus was up on the cross. Who are you? The soldiers mock him and yell at him on the cross. He saved other people. If he's really the son of God, he'll save himself. Why can't he save himself? The chief priests mocked him. You're the one who said you could destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. If you can do that, Jesus, you can take yourself down from the cross. If you really are the son of God, just who are you? Even the criminals, notice this, the criminals on each side of Jesus hanging on the cross, they say to him, they look at him and say, we, we know why we're here. Why are you here? Who are you? If you really are the son of God, save yourself and save us with you. Listen, Jesus on the cross bears the shame of his people. Those who deserve to be bloodied and bare. You and me. Jesus was bloodied and beaten for us. Jesus bears our shame all the way to the grave. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day was raised from the dead so that we can have life. So that we can live freed from shame. That now in Christ I am freed and belong to Jesus through repentance and faith. Listen, God uses those he knows to do mighty things despite their fragility and their weakness. Some of you in this room are waiting for God to do something extraordinary through you. But you must know, according to Luke in Acts chapter 19, Christ must work mightily in you before Christ will work mightily through you. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, may, may every single one of us in this room answer this question honestly. Who am I? Father, may we be found to belong to Jesus. May we know that we belong in Jesus and have confidence because of your spirit in us and, and these marks of being a faithful servant, being completely and fully known and being obedient. Father God, we know that there are times in our lives where, where we don't follow you as we ought and as we should. 
And Father God, that the Christian life can sometimes feel like, like a wave, but may we see just the amazing mercy of Christ. And may we abide in him and seek to follow him and love him above all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.